What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We spent the last several Mondays keeping our focus on Palestine, which is what we're going to continue today. It has been almost 10 weeks since Israel launched its massive attacks on Palestine, both in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Over the weekend, the Ministry of Health announced that the death toll has amassed to at least 19,088, with over 54,450 individuals wounded. Joining us to discuss the current state of things is Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Good morning, Curry. Good morning, Cap. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. Um, and we're also joined by Zara Ballou, the Executive Director of the Bay Area Chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations or CARE. Good morning, Zara. Good morning. Zara, I'm going to start with you. When you hear those numbers, what runs through your mind and or your spirit? I, you know, day by day, I feel more broken. There's this feeling of inadequacy that is so hard to shake after more than 20 years in this work to see this carnage unfold in the worst way in our lifetime. The whole world watches is is heart-wrenching beyond belief. Curry? You know, um... The legal scholar Nora Arakat calls this the most well-documented genocide in history. And I think that's accurate. There's, um, <clears throat> you know, there are other horrific uh, things happening elsewhere in the world. And part of what is violent about things happening in the Congo and in Haiti is that they are relegated to the shadows, to the political margins. You know, that has its own violence. What's happening in Gaza is happening in the light, and that has its own violence. And what's really what's really excruciating is the fact that this could really stop. You know, if the mm-hmm. White House said stop, this would stop. And the fact that they keep it going, um, mm-hmm. that Washington and Tel Aviv keep this going, is just, it's really, um, it's incredible. Over the weekend, Netanyahu said in a a press conference that the conflict is an existential war that must be fought until victory despite pressure and costs, and said Gaza would be demilitarized and under Israeli security control. What does that mean to you when you hear those words in terms of what we can expect over the next months and months and, and months? Um to, to the point of what you just said. Right. Well, it, it's it's evident. There's a few things that are evident. One, yes, is that Israel is talking about an open-ended, uh, what they would call war or set of military operations. The, the, the demilitarization of Gaza is not a, it's not clear what, exactly that means. The notion that Hamas can be rooted out of Gaza is simply uh, not possible. Um, y- you know, the the question of Hamas is not, um, it's not this sort of isolated phenomenon. It is, it is wrapped up in the 
in the occupation of Gaza itself. And as many are saying, um, if Hamas was not carrying out armed operations against Israel, some other entity would be. So the idea that this can, the idea that, that Israel can, can defeat, can, can, can cause a defeat in the way that Netanyahu is describing, I think is a, is a fantasy. And what's really striking is there's what they say, and then there's what they're doing, which is targeting hospitals, which is systematically starving the population after having displaced it. And again, what's really striking is that there are no, there are no red lines here. Like there, there are no, the, the, the notion that this all falls under the self-defense of Israel and that that is sacred is something that uh, the White House holds up. And it doesn't matter if they're targeting hospitals or schools or mosques um, or, or, or whatever. And that is all extremely dangerous and troubling. So it just what it says to me is that it really falls on us in the streets and in the civil society to demand an end to this because it's evident that there is no restraint in Tel Aviv or, or in Washington at the moment. Is there anything you would like to add there? That there are no red lines is the thing that strikes me the most. We were in meetings with elected officials all of last week, and they continue to repeat this Hamas must be eliminated when one that is not working with this current strategy, but two tens of thousands of people have already died. And so that it will continue as we all watch hospitals being bombed and bulldozed, churches being bombed and then struck by snipers, schools. There is no stop in sight and there appear to be no limits. And we continue to enable it as as Americans, right? In addition to the billions of dollars we regularly send to know that just as recently as the last couple of weeks that we were sending even more tank shells. So the Biden administration was sidestepping Congress to do so. Um, right worries me for what is to come and that it could get worse before it gets better. It's hard to imagine what worse could, could look like. I mean, I think it's hard to imagine current conditions um, were not, you know, for, for the videos, for those of us who refuse to look away, we've got only 11 out of 36 hospitals partially operating. Um, the UN, um, when the UN representative talked about the conditions at Al Shifa Hospital as a bloodbath, and something else that I hadn't been tracking um, that came up for me as I was prepping to talk to you two, and that was something that I don't think is the, on the minds of a lot of people, and that's that we've got all of these people, human beings, packed into these refugee camps, um, and vaccinations for infectious diseases are also running out. Right. So when you think about something like COVID. Curry? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, it is it is it should be noted that there is actually a conversation within the Israeli establishment that is public in Hebrew language media uh, in Israel about the use of disease and starvation as part of the military operation. That is something that uh, the former head of the uh, National Security Council, the Israeli National Security Council, wrote an op-ed about in uh, an Israeli publication. 
uh, that it's not a bad thing if disease spreads. And yes, the, the World Health Organization has warned that disease could actually be more deadly than the bombing, which is really unfathomable given just how deadly the bombing has been. And so on one hand, it, it it's, I mean, it, it's, it's overwhelming to the mind to think about how this could get worse. And yet it's also not mysterious how it could get worse. I mean, we already see, and the people whose expertise not only in providing aid and care for the people of Gaza and Palestine, but, you know, Save the Children, the WHO, uh, various UN agencies, the World Food Program, these are, these involve practitioners who have been on the ground in all kinds of horrific situations around the world. And they are saying in increasingly unified voices, we already know that starvation is coming. We already know that uh, there's a kind of social breakdown when you've got so many people, um, hundreds of thousands of people now, confined to the border of Gaza and Egypt with, without food, without medicine, etc. We know what will happen. And then Israel is also gesturing toward operations beyond Gaza, not just gesturing, but carrying them out. I mean, they've carried out drone strikes in the West Bank last week. They are talking about after we defeat Hamas, we'll go after Hezbollah. Things are heating up in the Red Sea. I mean, it, it, so so it's it's very clear, actually, the lines, the dark lines along which this could develop if it is not stopped now in Gaza. Yeah, I was I was actually going to turn our attention toward the West Bank because a lot of our. Um, you know, most of our attention um, has been focused on what is happening in the Gaza Strip. But over the weekend, Israel launched a full-scale offensive into the city of Tulkarm. Um, Zara, what does that signal to you? They have been doing this this whole time, right? Is that while we've been focused on Gaza for the last two and a half months, they have been attacking uh, individuals, communities, refugee camps, and, and cities um, in the West Bank, predating October 7th, but, but even now. And what it signals to me is that the uh, Hamas isn't in these other places they're targeting, right? It's barely in Gaza. But what it signals to me is that this is a moment where Israel is putting on full display its intent to dehumanize and ethnically cleansed Palestinians, and the United States is enabling it. And on the world stage, everyone else sees that too. So when I say that things will get worse before they get better, I do worry more broadly about where we stand as a country and how the rest of the world sees us. There are rumors that talks are underway for another and I'm using air quotes here, pause. <laughs> um, the news calls it a truce um, for a hostage release, but it's really neither, is it? Because there was neither a pause nor a truce during the last so-called pause, so-called truce. In late November, Israel kept attacking and arrested just as many people as it released. Um, my guess, based on the conversations that I've been having, is some of the folks that were released have been rearrested at this point. 
to, to your point, uh, Zara, about how the rest of the world sees us, what and for whom is their performance for, do you think? I worry that the, well, the performance is an attempt to scare and silence Arabs, Muslims, and pro-Palestinian voices across the world. Um, challenge us and you will be quashed. Where I do find hope is that it's not working, Kat. Um, it amazes me that they have not been able to overcome the Palestinian people with their ravaging violence, right? And they continue to resist and they continue to hold their ground. And so I would say that the performance is for everyone and it is no longer working. Curry, what, what what are your thoughts? I mean, there, there won't really be a pause or a truce. On one on one hand, Netanyahu's been pretty apologetic about what he's doing and what he plans to do. But then on the other hand, there's these these talks and these rumors that there'll be, you know, a pause and, and the release of more hostages. Who and what is the performance for? Well, what's interesting is in terms of those talks. I mean, to to my knowledge, the um, you know, Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, they withdrew last week uh, their person in Qatar. I mean, Israel, at the moment, Israel's not even pretending to be interested in a kind of um, negotiated pause or, or uh, whatever you want to call it. I, I just I think that this is making it clear that the White House and certainly Netanyahu are so intransigent. Uh, in the face of how many votes in the UN Security Council, how many votes in the UN General Assembly, uh, the majority, not, not only masses of people all around the world, in the Middle East, across Europe, Latin America, Asia, you know, uh, in Africa, protesting, but in the United States, which has historically, um, unfortunately, been reliable not only in terms of the U.S. government um, and its support of Israel, but historically, uh, the U.S. population has at least accepted U.S. Uh, support of Israel on the world stage. And now, strong majorities of Americans are saying there should be a ceasefire. Uh, the vast majority, 80% of voters in the president's party, the Democratic Party, say there should be a ceasefire. In the face of all of that, Tel Aviv and Washington are saying, you know, full steam ahead. Um, and so it just really, if anything's going to be demonstrated, it's going to be popular power. I mean, it, it, we're, we're really seeing actually the, the kind of official guardrails that are supposed to prevent things like this. We are witnessing their failure. I mean, we've heard for what a couple nearly two years now since um russia's you know horrendous invasion of ukraine we have heard white house officials talk about the importance of the international rules-based order and international law and we are seeing again i don't know if there's ever been this kind of open brazen violation of international law as what israel is doing right now i mean on television to announce that you're going to cut off food and water uh, and fuel and electricity from the Gaza Strip to shoot surrendering people as the Israeli Defense Forces did 
uh, just recently, and they happened to be uh, people who are Israeli citizens, right? But these were people waving a white flag. I mean, the origins of international law really lie in what what warring parties do with people who are surrendering and how you treat people when they surrender. And so it, 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 the level of violation is incredible, and yet we see the violence continue. And that, to me, says it has to be the people. Only the people can fight for and win uh, a ceasefire. And we're going to get to the to the people by the end of this interview, um, I hope. Uh, but so, some some more stuff to to talk about. I, w- I want to talk a bit about the settler violence um, against the Palestinian people. Um, several European countries and the United States say they will ban what they call extremist settlers from entering their countries and have called on Israel to get the settlers, quote-unquote, under control. First, uh, and I'll start with you, Zara, how hollow does that ring to you? Why would the settlers want to go into any of those countries? Second, I find it absurd that they, that these countries can condemn the settler violence, but not the violence of the bombs, the tanks, and genocidal fervor of Israel. And then third, apparently, some of the leading instigators of this violence are actually American citizens um, who moved into the settlements for the quote unquote settlements for the quote unquote lifestyle, um, and they can't be banned from their own country. I don't know which piece of that you want to tackle, but there it all is. I mean, to your question earlier, right? Like, who is the performance? you can't ban Americans from coming back to the United States in the way that this and it is in many cases the Americans who are engaging in the violence I'm not really worried about European settlers to Israel trying to visit the United States anytime soon and so it appears as though it's I'll give you a little so you forget the bigger picture and it's not working right? because people see right through it very quickly both what I'm saying is that, look, these are, these are Americans in many cases, and so you're not barring them from coming home. You're not stripping them of their citizenship. That would be a much bigger problem. And the others don't want to come here anyway. And what does it all matter if, like, we're talking about skirmishes, and I don't want to diminish settler violence because it is severe, but as compared to the carpet bombing of Gaza, which we are, in fact, enabling, it's as though it's so superficial and they... They hope to, to the earlier point about the masses, that they hope that it will quell the masses, but the masses are far beyond falling for the BS. Yeah, that's sort of what I feel like we're watching. Like, well, maybe if we say this, um, people will go home. Well, maybe if we say that, people will go home, as opposed to just saying mm-hmm. what it is. Tens of thousands of people across the globe are demanding you say, which is, in a, or do, actually, an immediate ceasefire. Curry, I want to throw this question to you. Um, this, this supposed ban um, on, on settlers who engage in extremist violence. Um, your thoughts about the, the U.S. and, and uh, these European uh, world powers having, having an opinion on that, but, but while the, to use Zara's words, the carpet bombing of the Gaza Strip continues. Right. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll second the kind of... Um, I don't know, skepticism around the, the extent to which the U.S. is willing to bifurcate. Yeah, we, we're not we don't know about these settlers uh, and, and their violence, but it's totally fine, not only for Israel to just level uh, whole parts of Gaza and kill untold thousands of people, but to supply the bombs 
as they're doing it um, is is um, is is deeply uh, problem. It, it shows that they don't actually care about Palestinians, right, at all. That's not the 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 metric uh, that they're using. Um, it is there. There's something. There are people in Washington who are maybe uncomfortable um, with the some of elements of the settler movement, uh, and so. That that's the that's the critique. But what the Israeli state is doing is considered uh, fine, which, you know, let's be clear, it is precisely the Israeli state that that enables not only enables the settler violence in the West Bank, but really we, we have to understand those violences as one and the same. I mean, and, and the, they they know that, you know, the Israeli settlers, everything they do, all of their uh, harassment, their violence against Palestinians in the West Bank are done with IDF soldiers standing by or conveniently absent when uh, they know that there's a certain kind of violence happening. Now, just to, to your specific question around the question of set settlers being able to come to the U.S. or not, for 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 one to be on a list of people banned from the U.S. requires a level of documentation from the Israeli government. And the ministry that would do that is the Justice Ministry, which is currently headed by Itmar Ben-Gavir, who himself is very much from and a leader of the settler movement. So on, in a very concrete sense, the documentation that the State Department would use to say that uh, that, that certain settlers are not allowed is not going to happen. And so it's really, um, it's really a kind of uh, rhetorical performance than uh, anything practical. The last point is that the weapons that the settlers use are by and large U.S. weapons. And it was until very recently, actually, that the State Department was trying to push through a sale of 20,000 rifles, American-made rifles, to Israel that, again, Itmar Ben-Gavir, the justice minister, was very clear would be distributed to, quote-unquote, Israeli citizens and primarily uh, settlers because of what we have been doing in these streets um, and all the pressure that we have exerted on Congress, which has yet to call for a ceasefire. But there were members of Congress who said, look, this this sale of rifles can't go through. And at the moment, that sale is paused. But again, it indicts the U.S. in the settler violence. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I'm in conversation with Curry Peterson Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, and Zara Ballou, the Executive Director of the Bay Area Chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE. We're spending this Monday, as we have the past several Mondays, with our focus exclusively on what is happening in Palestine. Curry, I, for a minute, have wanted to get you to help me unpack Lebanon, um, but we always run out of time. Um, sure. But on October 8th, a contingent of the IDF um, went immediately to the northern border of Lebanon um, and Israel saying, they said, you know, that they were worried about Hezbollah attacking there. Help me understand the role that Lebanon plays in all of this, as well as the U.S. connection to Lebanon and the Lebanese armed forces. Right. Well, and we should start by saying that Israel occupied, well, Israel invaded uh, Lebanon as part of um, a, a, a massive intervention in the, uh, you know, the, the Lebanese civil war. Um, and it carried out a horrific invasion uh, and um, also was present and presided over <clears throat> the slaughter of Palestinians in particular by 
in, in refugee camps in Lebanon by far right Lebanese forces. Uh, and then Israel, you know, occupied southern Lebanon for, for many years until pushed out in the year 2000. So this is not just, um, you know, Lebanon and Israel don't happen to just be kind of neighboring countries. This is there, there's any obviously at the moment we're seeing very clearly um you know, the full weight of Israel's violence being brought down upon the Palestinians, who, of course, are kind of the primary um, uh, subjects of, of Israeli violence. But Israel, of course, has has waged war um, and occupation uh, of lands throughout the region, actually. And Lebanon is certainly one of those places. And so, yes, uh, in fact, there was a conversation uh, in, in the hours after the October 7th attacks that there was a conversation within the Israeli military establishment that perhaps actually they should go after Hezbollah, um, which is this armed force um, uh, in, in Lebanon. Um, and they, you know, they chose instead to, to to go after Gaza. But they have also said, as, as I mentioned earlier, that when they, quote unquote, defeat Hamas, that perhaps they'll go after Hezbollah next. And so from the 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 first hours of this latest kind of round of uh, incredible violence, there has been Israeli aggression toward Lebanon. Uh, and there also has been firing of rockets uh, from Lebanon um, that are that are meant to show support for uh, Palestinians in uh, in Gaza. One thing that's worth noting. Uh, well, well, I should I should say too that that you know at the moment tens of thousands of Israelis have been evacuated uh, from communities in the south and in the north. And in the north, they are um, evacuated from uh, you know because of the the, the possibility of um, of armed conflict with Hezbollah. It's also worth saying that Israel actually uh, has been carrying out a number of operations in southern Lebanon, including one that killed um, a journalist uh, just just last week. So, you know, again, as as we were just talking about with the West Bank, our attention has rightly been on Gaza. But uh, what Israel is doing uh, toward Lebanon, what's happening on that border is also extremely concerning. Yeah, the the. You mentioned the journalist, and he had on the blue press flak jacket, which seems to not be meaning much um, anywhere journalists are in this conflict. I mean, the sheer number of journalists that have been murdered um, in, the, in the past 10 weeks is, is mind-boggling. Um, and, and to my mind, um, in, in, in intentional um, effort to, to create silence, right, to prevent yeah. the stories from being told. Yes, as, as I mean, and I think the media blackouts also, I mean, we're it just now ended, but for several days, again, you know, Israel basically canceled uh, internet service uh, in Gaza at the same time as they're attacking journalists. And that during those days, there was an attack on another hospital um, in, in actually multiple hospitals uh, in northern Gaza. So it's not a coincidence that they're going after journalists, that they are uh, having these media blackouts, and that that's precisely when they're uh, committing some of their gravest violations. And not for nothing, on a side note, as you know, this morning I'm getting ready for the interview, and so I'm Googling stories, and um, I clicked on some headline about um, a, a skirmish at the 
Lebanese-Israel uh, border and um, didn't look at the name of the news outlet that I was clicking on. And all of a sudden, there was this big <laughs> sign on my computer that says, sorry, you have been blocked. <laughs> Wow. And I looked and I was like, wait, what what is it? And apparently I clicked on a link for timesofisrael.com. Hmm. And I have been blocked from seeing their content, which I, you know, fine, whatever. But I, I found that a bit, that was the first time in my experience that, that I have been blocked from looking at the content of, of a media outlet. Um, Zara... I know that some of the work that you and others are doing is to protect Arab Muslim children from harassment since all of this has started here in the, the U.S. Can you talk to my listeners about some of the harassment young people are facing as they simply try to go to school? We have seen what we are calling a staggering number of complaints in the past more than two months. And they've really ranged from employment discrimination to people who have been fired their jobs for content on their personal social media to violent hate crimes, um, so hit and run, vandalism, um, just all over the Bay Area, to be clear, right? We're not exempt from this. And then what children are facing has been, has been the hardest. And so we have, I got a call last night from a mom who said that her son's history teacher had been making one-sided remarks in support of Israel and that that had been ongoing for more than a month and that they really felt like they had hit the end of the road in terms of what they could do on their own to help their child feel safe uh, in class, right? It's been that, it's been pro-Israel events, it's been the, you know, the kidnapped hostage posters all over campuses. And then beyond that, what we're seeing is that young people, as they are saying, no, I am not okay with this narrative and I want to organize an event on campus. They're also facing targeting there. And so we've seen students face delays, face harassment, um, have to think about like, well, how do we shift the narrative to make it more palatable to our school administration before we host an event for Palestine? And so what we're hearing consistently from young people is that they are afraid to go to school. They feel like their voices are not being heard, that they are constantly receiving one-sided messaging um, and that they they were already, Muslim students were already facing uh, bullying at a rate of about 50% before October 7th. And so that's gotten, that's gotten much worse. And then the last thing I'll say is that we've seen that service providers who are going into schools are also being targeted. So some of you may be following what's happening with the Arab Resource and Organizing Center in, uh, in San Francisco. They are the only Arabic language service provider for high school students in San Francisco Unified and they have been targeted. Their contract is under review. They are being accused of violating their contract in an attempt to cut them out of schools where, yes, they provide a safe space on the question of Palestine, but they're also providing much needed services. And so that all around, it is as though these young people are under under attack and being told if you, you know, if you hold your head up, if you hold your back straight and you want to speak up, then you will face targeting. And how are you seeing schools stepping up or not to protect these kids? It's, you know, with all due respect, I have learned in the last two months that the that the barrier to entry to becoming a school board member is very disappointingly low. Uh, we have seen the most offensive commentary 
and advocacy from some school board members. I remember one who, when I sent a generic email urging that they consider balanced perspective, accused me of violating her First Amendment rights. And I thought, you cannot be the person that is influencing education in the school district because I am embarrassed for you and the school district. And so we have seen some school boards, schools and school boards, putting out one-sided pro-Israel statements, exploring one-sided pro-Israel resolutions. And when they receive the request, for commentary on Palestine, there is this, well, what about Israel? It's like, well, you know, the death count is 20 to one right now. And so to keep harping on what the the inclusion of the oppressor is, is concerning. We've also seen some incredible school leaders who have been responsive and who've also shared, like, hey, we feel as though we can't say a lot and we can't do a lot. And so we're trying to protect our jobs and we're trying to protect these young people. And so it's been a mixed bag. I will say there are some that are rising to the top that are saying, um, you know, we, we know we need to do better. And really, maybe more than administrators and school board members where I have seen the most hope is in the unions, right? So, the, for example, the Oakland Educators Association, standing in solidarity with Palestine, which then gave its members the courage to host a Palestine teach-in, despite the district's threat. And that's been really, that's, I think, where we're finding the most solidarity, is that overlap. Yeah, and the OEM is part of a massive uh, Labor for Palestine rally over the weekend. Zara, what about outside of school for adults? What kinds of harassment is the Arab Muslim community enduring, and how much like post 9-11 does it feel like? So there's a range, right? So the employment issues are, are very real. People are coming to terms with, oh, wait, I work at a company that has an office in Israel. So all of a sudden, I can't grieve for Palestine in my workplace. And we've seen that a lot in tech. Um, and I think that's where we've also seen the most cognitive dissonance because these are people who do really well for themselves otherwise. Maybe I'm a first or second generation immigrant. I make four hundred to $600,000 a year. And all of a sudden, I cannot speak out for Palestine in my workplace. And when I do, I face harassment um, by my Israeli colleagues and targeting by HR. Um, there's also been this awakening of my personal social media isn't actually personal. So we've received a number of complaints from people who have been fired allegedly for what they posted on their private Facebook pages, right? But a colleague saw it and reported it. Um, so we've seen that in, in the workplace settings. We've also seen a lot of doctors being targeted. And so we've had to have conversations with people about doxing and how you protect yourself from that, even from your colleagues. Um, we've seen hate crimes, right? And so hate crimes have impacted people of all ages. Just in the San Francisco Bay Area, we had a young girl who was choked by a man, a former congressional candidate in Monterey. We had a, you know, an Arab student who was in a hit and run at Stanford, um, an Arab woman who was targeted in Burlingame, and like the list goes on. I feel like once a week I get a, a very violent hate crime complaint as opposed to like somebody called me a terrorist and I've learned to just take that and, you know, take that in passing. And then the last thing that we've seen, and we've been fortunate to not see this in California, but we are mindful that it could happen here as well, is um, <clears throat> starting actually pretty early in October, members of the Arab and Muslim community on the East Coast and in the Midwest reported being visited by the FBI. Um, not surprising, uh, law enforcement visits often track in our community to foreign policy issues. And so people were being visited by the FBI, asked about their thoughts on what's happening in Palestine, asked about who they were organizing with. And, Lawyers were able to mobilize very quickly to protect these people, but we are concerned, of course, that that will continue um, into the new year. 
today in San Francisco, some um, some folks that took a rest uh, on the Bay Bridge are going to court. Um, we know that tens of thousands of people across the country have taken a rest to stand in solidarity with Palestine and court is is starting to happen. I don't know if either of you are tracking what is happening around the country. Are we seeing um, courts actually charge? Are we seeing uh, charges be dropped? And what what is what is the potential here for chill factor, depending on what the <clears throat> DA slash courts decide to do or not do? Curry, any thoughts there? Well, yeah. First of all, um, I mean, so many thoughts. So first of all. Intimidation really is well. Let me let me let me let me say this: when we win a ceasefire, because I I do believe that we will, you know. And um, as somebody who pays attention to what's happening in the streets, you know, in terms of movement, and pays attention to what's happening in the the halls of power in Washington, you can see the cracks forming and, and extending in those halls of power in Washington. And that is what's ha- that's because of what's happening in the streets. You know what I mean? It's not the it's not the moral integrity of the people in those halls of power. You know, they are they are our our movement is is pushing and extending into those halls of power. So I do believe that we will win a ceasefire. Um, and when we do, it will be because of these courageous actions and these, you know, small but but important actions of calling members of Congress, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, of course, these arrests on the Bay Bridge and, you know, in in Congress, et cetera, that's how we're going to win or that's how we are winning. Um, And so they are doing what they can to intimidate folks, you know, from from taking those actions. And part of that is intimidating and going after the very organizations, you know, that are leaders. And I just I do I I want to extend my solidarity to, to 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 care, frankly, which the White House itself, um, you know, is 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 trying to um, trying to smear, you know, uh, and organizations like AROC similarly. The purpose of that is to discredit organizations and, and, and individuals who are doing the important work of exposing, revealing the unacceptable policies that that um, these officials are carrying out. Um, so that's the kind of function of it. And in terms of what we're actually seeing, it's been a mix so far. I mean, it, you know, so many people have been arrested. So many students have been um, uh, said that they're going to be disciplined, et cetera, et cetera. And I think just now we're starting to see the trials. We're starting to see disciplinary hearings. Um, you know, some have been harsh, uh, but really it's just kind of beginning. And I think that it's, it's another reason why the, the protests can't light up. You know, we need to actually step it up and deepen um, to push back that intimidation. Well, we will definitely bring you back, Curry, for more analysis as these court dates continue to roll into the new year. All right, y'all, I've got to leave it there. Thank you both so much for coming back on the show. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. 
That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>